Lord, you say that I am loved as we uh, open up our Bibles and as we throw wide open our hearts. Say it again. I pray that you would communicate to us, to each of us, every one of us, before we leave this morning, in a way that allows us to hear it and to believe it. Say to us, Lord, that you love us. We pray in the name of Jesus the King. Amen. Last Sunday, I shared with the congregation some of the ways that the staff in the session over the course of the past year in in sort of an informal but intentional way have been seeking to listen to God and discern his heart for us and to bring us clarity about what he desires to be our emphasis at this point in our life together as a church. And uh, we wanted to bring you into the clarity that we think that God has brought us to. The outcome of a year of seeking to listen to God and discern his heart for us is a belief that God is calling us to become known more than anything else by the love that we have as a church. That we would be, that we would become a church that is not merely informed by the love of God, but is defined and shaped by the love of God. That we would be a church that loves Jesus, loves one another, and loves the world. If you weren't here last Sunday, we really want to encourage you to go back and listen to that message. You can get it as a podcast. You can go to our website, to our uh, archive section, our resources, and pull it up and listen to it or watch it. Um, We really want to encourage you to do that in order that all of us might be able to start this journey together. So what would it look like for us to love others in a way that truly reflects God's love for us? We don't know exactly what that's going to mean for us, but we do know that a significant part of the year we will spend wrestling together with what it means for us to love the people that God has placed around us in really practical and tangible ways. What does it mean for me to see you and to acknowledge you, to honor you and value you? What does it mean for me to listen to you and to listen well? What does it mean for me to make room in my heart for you and to make room in my schedule for you? What does it mean for me to practice a life of forgiveness with you, to not let anything come between me and you? And what would it mean for me to put you first at cost to myself, which is really the biblical definition of love. That's what we want to be focusing on. But as I said last Sunday, this is not something that we can program or strategize or organize into existence. We're persuaded of that. This isn't something we can just try hard and muster up as a quality that defines us as God's people. We are convinced that the only way that we can become a community that is known for its love is if our love for the people around us is is only an outpouring and an overflowing of the love that we've experienced from God. 
As 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. It has to start with him. It can't start as something that we seek to do. It is only as we ourselves are transformed by the love of God for us that we can translate the love of God into the lives of the people that God has put around us. Only then will our love be genuine and only then will it be lasting. So in this, uh, this year, as we're going to be focusing on what it means for us to become a church defined by love, we're going to begin the year, the first couple of months, by focusing not on our love for others, but on God's love for us. And the way that we're going to do that is not by just trying to learn more about the love of God, but by praying that the love of God would be something that we would experience more and more deeply. And to do that, we're going to be focusing on Paul's prayer that we find in the third chapter of his letter to the Ephesian church. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, which is a prayer that God's people would be established in God's love, that they would be able to grow in understanding the nature of God's love, and that they would experience God's love. And we are asking that everybody who considers herself or himself a part of the covenant family, that each one of us would commit to doing four things during this year. First, that every one of us would commit to praying this prayer for covenant every day for the rest of the year. To pray Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And to do that, not just on our own, but when we get together with other people who are part of the church, maybe over coffee or in a Bible study or, or as a grow group or even around your own family table as a family in your home, uh, that we would be praying this prayer on a daily basis for the church family. Second, that we would commit it to memory. And one of the really uh, cool things that will happen, as you'll discover, is if you are praying this every day for the church family, you cannot help but begin to memorize it. And if you are memorizing it, you cannot help but begin to be praying it more often as God brings these, uh, these themes to mind and puts them on your heart to pray. The third thing we want to encourage you to do is to do your own study of the passage, to spend some time in it. A great way to do that is just to read it in some different translations and see what insights you gain into the passage as we are going along the way and studying it together. And then the last thing is I want to encourage, we want to encourage all of us to be talking about this prayer together. So when, we, you, when you get together with other people in your grow group or around your family table or whatever, talk about it. So how is this impacting you as you have begun this practice of praying for the church family? And how are, what are you noticing is different in your own day-to-day -day life as a result of others praying this prayer for you over the last few months? So let's begin this morning by just reading through this verse as I do that, I'll just uh, point out the three main petitions or the three main requests that make up Paul's prayer for God's people. And then we're going to circle around and begin to look more closely at the first petition. We're going to be actually doing that this week and over the next couple of weeks, just beginning to unpack the very first request that Paul makes. So in verse 14, Paul begins by telling us that he is throwing himself before God and he is pleading with God that out of his glorious riches and by his limitless power, he would bring about in us what we can't bring about in ourselves, which is for God's love to become a reality for us. Verse 14, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And then he goes on saying that to to talk about these three specific things that he is praying. The first petition is a request for us to be brought into the love of God 
for us and established in that love. So beginning in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That first request actually carries over into the next section in verse 17, where Paul restates it. For Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith is the same thing as our being rooted and established in love. So beginning in verse 17, then we come to the next petition. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So Paul prays that we would be able to understand more of the boundless dimension of God's love, what God's love for us is really like. And then in verse 19, he moves to the third petition. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul's last petition is that the love of God would not just be something that we know about, but that it would be something that we know personally and experientially and it is something that would lead to our being transformed by it. And then he finishes in verses 20 and 21 with a word of praise to God as the one whose power makes God able and the one whose love moves God to do more for us than we would ever think to ask for ourselves. Not to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, as soon as we begin to pray a prayer to understand or experience God's love, we run into a conundrum. How does a finite and physical human being bound to a specific place and time, like us, experience love from an infinite and non-physical being? who is everywhere at the same time. Have you ever wrestled with that? I know that I have. In fact, I remember sometime when I was nine or 10, I'm not sure exactly how old I was, but I can still remember the moment vividly when I asked God to step into my room and show me that he was real. Every night, my mom would tuck me in. She'd come, we'd turn off the light, and she'd come and sit on the edge of my bed and put her arms around me, and we'd have a little whispered conversation about some of what the day held. And then she would tell me she loved me. She would kiss me, give me a hug, and then she would, um, would head out and close the door. And I can still remember, I mean, I can feel the feeling still of what comfort and what peace that moment brought to me at the end of the day. I knew that she loved me. So one night after she tucked me in and she left the room, I laid there and I just looked up at the ceiling. I was watching the light of the headlights move as cars would come to the stoplight or stop sign opposite uh, our house and then either turn right or left on the street in, in front of our house. And as I was watching the lights move, I remember offering up a prayer. And I'm not sure what it was that sparked the prayer. Maybe it was something that I experienced at church, like uh, I remember going to the the drama program Amal and the Night Visitors, and and that there's something in me that that stirred in my otherwise fairly bleak church-growing experience as a kid. 
Or maybe I had just been talking recently to Mrs. Heinlein, who was our favorite babysitter, an elderly woman who uh, lived up at the end of the street. And I, I remember about her that every time she babysat for us, especially when we were little kids, she loved pulling us up into her lap and telling us about heaven. And I remember being so captivated by her description. Or maybe it was just thinking about how real my mother's love was for me because of her presence and her touch, her, uh, my, my knowing and seeing and feeling her right there with me, and how different that was from the idea of an, of an invisible God showing love to me. I'm not sure what it was, but I remember staring at the ceiling and saying, God, if you're real, come down here and show me now. And I waited, and I waited, and I remember falling asleep, disappointed, with nothing having happened other than yet another part of my already fragile faith as a kid being dismantled. How does a finite and physical human being bound to a specific place and time like us experience love from an infinite non-physical being? I mean, look at the challenge faced by God's people as they try to approach him and as God approached them You may be familiar with the the encounter that the people of God had with God at Mount Sinai. It's described for us in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. The Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed and a dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast as from a ram's horn and the people trembled. Moses led them out from the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain and all of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in the form of fire. And the smoke billowed into the sky like smoke from a brick kiln. And the whole mountain shook violently. And as the blast, like the ram's horn, grew louder and louder, Moses spoke yelled, and God thundered his reply back. And when the people heard the thunder and the loud blast as from a ram's horn, and when they saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke billowing from the mountain, they stood at a distance trembling with fear. How does a finite and physical human being bound to a specific place and time like us experience love from an infinite, non-physical being? Well, to get God's answer to that question, we have to flip from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And there we find God's answer. How? By becoming a finite and physical human being bound in space and time just like us. That's how. Let's circle back around and look at the first petition in Paul's prayer. His first request, which we find in verses 16 and 17. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, sometimes the most significant things about a passage are the very most obvious things the things that just strike you right on the surface of the passage. And I think that's certainly true here. Let me just point out two obvious things 
in this passage. One we'll spend quite a bit of time with, and the other we'll just touch on at the end of the message. Obvious thing number one. Notice that in this first part of his prayer for the church to experience God's love, Paul doesn't even mention the word love once. He begins his prayer not by discussing an attribute, but by introducing a person. It would be like someone being asked to give a talk on politics, and instead of standing up and giving a speech on seven principles of democracy, she stands up and she says, I'd like you to meet my friend Abraham Lincoln. Suddenly we're not talking about an idea or a concept. We're talking about a person who embodies it, who fleshes it out. In Paul's mind, love is never merely conceptual. It is always personal. It is fleshed out in the person of Jesus. According according to Paul, and this is crucial that we understand this, according to Paul, Jesus can't be understood apart from God's love, and God's love can't be understood apart from Jesus. You want to plumb the depths of divine love? Well, don't go pick up a philosophy book by Plato or Aristotle or Descartes or Kant. Instead, pick up one of the Gospels. Read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, the four historical accounts of the life of Jesus Jesus, that you'll find at the beginning of the New Testament. And look the love of God in the face. Whatever there is to know of God's love can be found in this person that Paul knows as Christ. Jesus Christ, who said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. That prayer that I prayed as a little kid lying in bed, it turns out that God had answered it 2,000 years before it ever occurred to me to pray it. He did come and step into my world. Here are other passages that echo this same amazing truth about the Christian claims. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Hebrews chapter one, verse three, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 19, he is the image of the invisible God, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. When we look at Jesus, we look God's love in the face. Roy Hessian, in his wonderful devotional book, We Would See Jesus, which I would really uh, uh, encourage you to consider looking at, Um, He elaborates on this idea. The glorious central fact of Christianity is that God has made a full and final revelation of himself, which has made him understandable, accessible, and desirable. Light is invisible unless it shines upon some object. God is light, we read, but he is invisible and unknowable unless he shines upon some object that will reveal him. The object upon which he has shown is the face of Jesus Christ. As 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines in the face of Christ. Wow. A few weeks weeks ago as I was uh, memorizing 
Ephesians chapter 3, this prayer, and thinking about the miracle of God taking on human form, of this, this boundless love that fills heaven, being squeezed into a single human being. This poem sort of formed itself in my mind, and I've asked Scott to stick it up on the screen because the, the visual dimension of this poem is as much a part of the poem as the words themselves. It's called Straight and Narrow, and just to help us a little bit with the meaning of it, the word thrid is an old and skinnier version of the word threaded. And the word straight, like the bearing straight, means a, a narrow passage. Love wider than wide, longer than long, higher than high, deeper than deep, thrid through the narrows of a man whose span was no wider than outstretched hands of a man in whose and from whose veins blood ran. How here and nowly, how fearful and wonderfully, how straight and narrowly this wide world plan began. When you look at Jesus, you look the love of God in the face. Who was Jesus? God in our midst. Why did he come? To show us God's love. Think about the first few words in one of the most familiar passages in all of the New Testament. John chapter 3, verse 16. God so loved the world that he sent his son. Turn that around the other way. Why did Jesus send his son into this world? Because of his love for it. It is God's love that determined every dimension of Jesus' mission in our midst. The reason that Jesus came wasn't just to show us God, but to show us God's love for us. Jesus can't be understood apart from God's love, and God's love can't be understood apart from Jesus. So that being true, I want to ask you to just join me and to step back into the world when and where Jesus walked, and to, to look and listen over his shoulder as he interacts with different people. And as we do this, I want to see if we can't gain a fresh and maybe deeper glimpse of what the love of God is like. As I read each of these encounters that come from the Gospels, I just want to encourage you to listen with your heart and not just with your mind. Use your imagination and put yourself in each one of these stories. I want to encourage you to imagine that you are the person that Jesus is interacting with. Before I read these, let me just pause and pray Paul's first request for us. Lord, we pray that out of your glorious riches, that you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Do you ever feel unacceptable, rejected, pushed out into the margins like there is no place where you really belong? Luke chapter 5. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Do you ever feel small and unimportant 
and find yourself wondering if God really only cares about the big and important people in this world? Luke 18. One day some parents brought their little children to Jesus so that he could touch them and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. And then Jesus called for the children and he said to the disciples, let the children come to me. Don't stop them for the the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. You ever feel like you've done something so wrong that you could never be forgiven or fully accepted by God again? John chapter eight. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives. A crowd soon gathered and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again, turned to them and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again He turned to the woman and he said, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Do you ever just doubt whether or not this whole Christianity thing is true? Whether Jesus really was who he said he was? Whether the resurrection really happened? And do you feel fear about how God receives your doubts? John chapter 20. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. And they told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands and put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. In other words, unless I see for myself physical evidence that he really died and he really has risen from the dead. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was among them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was there standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he turned to Thomas, and he said, Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't give in to your doubts any longer. Just believe. Have you ever resisted God and pushed him out of your life? And do you wonder if it's too late now? Have you forever disqualified yourself from the love of God? Luke chapter 23. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And when they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Of those who put him to death, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, even as the soldiers gambled for his clothing by throwing dice. 
One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since we are under the same sentence? We are being punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When we see Jesus, we look the love of God in the face. As we draw near the end of the message and then enter into a time of worship in which we respond to these things that we've heard from God's word, there is one other obvious thing that I just want us to briefly notice about this first request, this first petition in Paul's prayer for the people of God. Notice that this prayer suggests movement in just the opposite direction from what we might expect. Paul doesn't pray for us to enter into God's love, which would imply effort on our part. He prays for God's love in the person of Jesus to enter into us, which implies that all of the effort rests with God. You hear that? Do you sense the difference that it would make for us to understand that? Listen to it again. Verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Shepard, my two-year-old grandson, and I got a chance to play hide-and-seek over Christmas vacation. And this is how it went. He went around behind the back of our chaise, wriggled his way through between the chaise and the piano as quickly as he could. He popped out of the other side. He threw up his arms and he yelled, I was looking for you and I found you. Here I am. (laughs) That's the way that God plays hide and seek with us. That's how an invisible God makes himself known. I was looking for you. And I found you. Here I am. Jesus says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Next week, we're going to explore more of what that means and specifically what the death of Jesus has to do with the love of God. But this morning, I just want to reiterate with Paul that the most important way that we can come to know more of the love of God is not through some effort of ours, but it's simply to ask God to make that love known to us. And that's why we're asking the whole congregation to pray this prayer for one another over the course of this year. So as we transition into uh, a season of worship response to the things we've heard, will you just pray Paul's first request with me one more time? I'll pray it out loud. And as I pray it, I just want you to pray it with me silently. Pray it for yourself. Take a moment just to remember who's sitting on either side of you. Pray it for them. Think about this whole church family that we are part of. Pray it for the whole church family. Would you pray with me? We kneel before you, our Heavenly Father, 
from whom our, your whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And we pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith.